Philippians chapter 2. You can remain standing as we read our scripture this evening. I certainly hope, as I said earlier, you've had a great week thus far. And, and if you haven't, well, you're in church, and that'll help you get a better week. And so glad you're here tonight. Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 8. As you're turning there, last week we, we looked at an instructional greeting. That was our topic. And uh, brother, do you have more of those handouts? Would you mind going towards the back as people might slip in a little bit later? I want to make sure they have it. I think the Green Officer just walked in. Good to see you, brother and sister. Would you wait there just for maybe five, ten minutes for the Alex? I don't want to miss anybody. And last week we talked about an instructional greeting. We talked about the very first five verses of the book as Paul introduces the book. And uh, we talked about a reminder of church order. We had a bunch of different things that we talked about. And our theme really started off with true joy is a byproduct of all of our great circumstances. Is that what we said? No, no, no. True joy is a byproduct of what's in our bankroll. Is that what we said? No, 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 no. True joy is a byproduct of our relationship with God. That's what we learned last week. And real joy comes from obedience to God. Tonight, we're going to look at a new nature expressed. The world says to get joy, you have to do what you want. God says when you get saved, that process changes and goes and flips around the other way. You have a new nature, and joy comes not through doing what you want, but through following God's plan, which is imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Philippians chapter 2, let's read verses 1 through 8. Why don't you read out loud with me the even-numbered verses? Could you do that for me? So you read 2, 4, 6, 8 uh, with me, and I'll read 1, 3, 5, 7 by myself. Here we go. Chapter 2, Philippians, verse number 1. The Bible says this. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Verse 2 altogether. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And you may be seated. This is one of the most important sections in the book of Philippians, and while there is a good deal of doctrinal content in this passage, we will focus tonight uh, our attention on the practical side in this lesson. Jesus came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew tells us. The fruit of our new nature in Christ ought to be expressed in service to God and to others. The theme of our lesson is uh, the seeker-sensitive church movement seeks to entertain its members with all kinds of programs, technology, feel-good theology. God, however, has saved us to serve. And it's the job of the local church to equip and engage people in the work of God. That's why a pastor gets up there, and as a cheerleader, he's preaching. He's preaching to motivate us to do something for the Lord. And that's what the church is supposed to do, and the pastor is supposed to do, and the preaching is supposed to do, is to equip us to go serve God and do something with our lives for our Heavenly Father who purchased us with His Son's blood. And so uh, God has saved us to serve. A servant mindset, however, is not natural. 
And how many have found that out to be true? <laughs> the servant mindset doesn't come natural to us. Naturally, we want to be served. Naturally, we want someone to do for us. But that's not the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come for people to do for him. He came to give his all for others. And that is what our goal is. So a servant mindset is not natural and must be developed through the principles outlined in the opening section of this chapter, which we just read. So what are some objectives of our lesson tonight? Number one, to understand that God has saved us so that we can serve him and make our lives count for that which is eternal. Number two, to destroy the enemies of service that are present in every life as a result of our old sinful nature and patterns. Number three, to help us recognize we are our own worst enemy and are most often defeated because we fail to let God change us to be conformed to his image. The reason uh, that we don't do what we ought to do is not someone else's fault. The reason I don't do what I'm supposed to do is because of me. And so we'll learn a little bit about that tonight. Uh, Number four, to, to develop in our minds a new way of thinking, to have the mind of Christ who never passed up an opportunity to be used for the glory of his Father. And number five, to cause, the, to cause us to understand that when serving uh, is the goal in the local church, the work of God is accomplished and God blesses our lives as a result. So we're going to look at three things uh, in our lesson. Servants must mutilate strife, uh, servants must master self, and servants must have the mind of the Savior. All three of these things are byproducts of joy, or will lead, rather, will lead to the byproduct of joy. When we decide uh, to mutilate strife, and we'll get into what I mean by that, the byproduct of that is joy. We decide to have the mind of the Savior, what will happen? The byproduct of that in our lives, it will produce joy in our hearts. And so let's get into this tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for the book of Philippians. Thank you for a man, the Apostle Paul, who God, uh, amidst many circumstances that could easily take his joy away, his joy was deeply rooted in his Savior. And nothing could shake that joy. And I pray that tonight, as we look into your word, you'd help us to to gain some of that joy, Lord, and not allow our joy to be surface and to be attached to things that waver and that change so quickly. And we dig deep into our Savior, God, and attach our joy to you. Help us to learn these principles from the book of Philippians chapter 2 tonight. Learn about our new nature in you. Help us, God, we ask. Bless these, your dear people. God, they've worked all day. Now they're here for church because they're hungry for the word of God. I pray you'd fill them, God, with your word tonight. Help me to be a blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Take out your notes if you would, and let's go ahead and start. Number one, let me give an illustration here uh, before we get into our first point. In 2008, evangelist Dr. John Getch preached to uh, the seniors at the Bible college there and reminded them that when they graduate, their goal is to go out and find a place of service. He challenged them to find the lowest rung on the ladder and grab onto that place while others will be climbing the ladder of success and pushing everyone else to the side as they climb to the top, there won't be much competition for that lowly place of service at the bottom rung of the ladder. One day, however, God says he's going to turn the ladder around. Matthew 23, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He wrote this poem. I think it's helpful. It's called The Bottom Rung. It says this, what will be your legacy, class of 2008? When it's all said and done, what will be your fate? Will you be known as aloof, self-centered, and proud, with achievements and honors that impress the crowd? As you walk that stage in cap and gown, will God look down with a smile or a frown? The world is crowded with talent and brains, dedicated to the goal of fiscal success and personal gain. With righteous ethics and morals often cast aside, they climb the ladder of success with pragmatism as their guide. 
They'll build their bank accounts along with houses and land, only to find in the end their foundation rests on sinking sand. Very soon you'll enter the ranks as college grads. You'll marry and not long after become moms and dads. You'll face the pressure that life and ministry brings. Your days will be filled with all kinds of non-essential things. Life's challenges have a way of destroying even the very best. There aren't a lot of classes to prepare you for this test. So how can you please God in this complicated mess? By grabbing hold of the bottom rung on the ladder of success. Instead of selling yourself out to pleasure's highest bid, invest your life in serving as your Savior did. Don't get discouraged when others in their own success abound, for one day soon, God will be turning the ladder around. Man, that helps me. Let's look at number one here. Servants must, first of all, if we're going to have joy, servants must mutilate strife. We must mutilate strife. Look at chapter two. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Verse two and verse three. Here's what it says. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Satan loves to divide the people of God. That's his goal. He wants to get in there with a wedge, and he wants to divide. He wants me to have wrong thoughts about Brother Alex. And I saw Brother Alex the other day, and he didn't look right. Something's going on there. <laughs> he, wants me, he wants me to all of a sudden be thinking wrong about God's people. That's what he wants. That's his desire. Uh, he, he wants to separate and divide the people of God so that the multiplication of ministry never takes place. Therefore, if we are to serve, we must mutilate strife. There is no room for strife in the family of God. There's not. If I have a desire uh, to fight or have strife, something's not right in my heart. That's not the way. Now, I understand contending for truth. Please don't misunderstand me. Uh, doctrinal truth we're going to stand for and fight for. That's, I, I, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about personal things between one another that, that the devil can use to, to extinguish our joy in our lives. And may I say, if you, if you have ever had something between you and a brother, you know there's no joy in your heart. <laughs> you know how it is. How about we take it, how about we drill down a little bit deeper here? This isn't the home builders class, but when there's something between you and your spouse, not a whole lot of joy in that home at that moment, is there? That's just how it works. Strife just sucks the joy out of your heart and out of your life. And God doesn't want us to have that, especially in the family of God. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says this, It is an honor for a man to cease from strife. God says if you can get above the, 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 the quibbles, if you can get above that, it's honorable, God said. But too many Christians, and I'm preaching that myself, too many Christians want to get in the, want to get in the squabbles and the, and the quibbles and, and want, to get, want to look on Facebook and see, oh, this person said this, oh, oh, oh. we want to, you know, in the gift with, with the popcorn, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, we want to, we want to get, get in all that stuff. But oh man, God doesn't want strife in our lives. The Bible says, but uh, it is an honor for a man to cease from strife. But every fool will be meddling, the Bible says. Proverbs 17, 19, he loveth transgression that loveth strife. If you want to see a fight between brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible says you must love sin. I don't want that, Brother Dave. I don't want that, and neither does God. I hope I'm not the one that's always looking for something to criticize in the work of God or his people. That leads to strife. Now, I'm not saying everything is always perfect. That's not my point. I'm not saying we can't get better. That's not my point either. What I am saying is we must be careful that we don't cause strife uh, within the family of God. You know, I don't always, Brother Easterday, I don't always have to have it the way I like to have it. I wish it was that way. <laughs> but guess what? If I demand that and I'm not happy unless it is, I'm going to cause strife. And someone's going to look at me and say, what's wrong with him tonight? Well, what's going on? 
I don't want that. No, 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 no. Uh, and we have to realize, we have to put ourselves down. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, but we, we must not allow strife uh, to creep in. The psalmist said it well. Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. As God looks down and sees a church unified together moving forward for him, that's a powerful force, my friends, for the gospel when we're unified together. And God says it's good, it's pleasant. He loves to see his, uh, his children dwelling together in unity. Those of you who are parents, you know what that's like. When your kids are downstairs playing or in the other room playing and you walk in and they're loving on each other, man, that helps you. But the flip side does not help you. When you hear the toy being thrown in the, you know, hey, that's mine, and the boom, 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 and and you hear all that going on. Hey, that's not good. You don't like that. That disturbs you. And I say, when God looks down from heaven, he sees past all this stuff right into our hearts. And if he sees strife that we hold or harbor between one another, oh boy, that's not what we want. Paul yearned for this spirit to prevail in the church according to the spirit of unity. He says this. I'm going to read you 1 Corinthians 1.10. I don't think it's in your notes. But I want you to catch how many times the idea of unity is expressed here. Listen. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I wonder what the theme of that verse is there. Oh, how important it was. Paul was trying to get across. We must be unified. Living in strife is no life. So how do we mutilate strife? Uh, Left to our own carnal flesh, strife will grow. So how do we kill strife? How how do we end strife? Letter A, we must be like-minded. We must be like-minded. The Bible says in verse number two, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one Mind, the local church is a body of believers. Physically, when the body is hurting or injured in one area, no matter how insignificant the area may be, the whole body suffers. Romans 12 tells us this, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many, talking about the the church, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. How many have ever had a bad toothache? Ever had that? Maybe you got a chipped tooth or something. And it affects so much of your body, doesn't it? It's tiny. It's not very big. But boy, even the, even the air going across that tooth, it gets you. And then you're trying to eat, but oh, man, it's there. And it affects so many. Uh, uh, how about a migraine? Anybody deal with migraines in the room? Anybody deal with that? Oh, man. And, uh, and those migraines can be debilitating. It starts off with a headache, and then all of a sudden it moves. Maybe your eye begins to hurt. Next thing you know, you're nauseous. And, and man, you can barely function. Why? That, that little thing starts to affect everything. And in the body of Christ, that's how it works. Paul, in an unusually lengthy passage, takes up that analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. Let me read this to you. It says this, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body. Paul says, is it therefore not of the body? Rhetorical question, obviously not. Uh, Just because the foot's not the hand, the foot can't say, well, I'm not a part of the body. I'm not the hand. No, 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 no. We need, I don't know about you, but I kind of like my feet and I need them. And this is what Paul's trying to say. Because I'm not the eye, sorry, if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? It's kind of interesting to picture this. If the whole body uh, were an eye, if the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? So the point he's, he's trying to draw here uh, is we're not all exactly the same, and that's a good thing. 
God, and let me read the, finish the passage here. Uh, uh, God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, if we were all exactly the same, doing the exact same thing, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness, for our comely parts uh, have no need. But God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part with, with which lack, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. In the illustration of the body, what he's saying is, you don't look at yourself and say, you know what? If I didn't have my hand, that's all right. No one in their right mind just thinks that. Now, some people live without that. that. That's not the point here. But the point is, when you look at your body, you don't want any part to be failing. You don't want any part to be hurting. You don't want any part to be lacking. You care for every part of your body. And in the body of Christ, that is what Paul is trying to communicate. We care for every part of the body. Uh, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a part of the body of Christ, Paul says, and God is telling us, you're important. You have a role. And we ought to care and have that love one for another. He continues on. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. That's God's design. Someone has a heartache. All of us ought to bear that heartache together with them. Bear you one of those burdens, the Bible says in Galatians 6. Or one member be honored. All the members rejoice with it. Now, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Is there any schism or division or separation towards someone else in your life? Sure, there will be differences of opinion from time to time. Personalities differ. We all don't have the same personality. Some people are very strong and they'll be right in your face. So, sorry, bro. <laughs> he was looking down. I had to. And, uh, and some people are very reserved. And that's Okay. God tempers the body together. He, he picks this and he picks this and he picks this and he puts it together to, to, according to his design. There will be differences and, and, and even sometimes personalities can, if we let them, personalities can clash. If we let them cause strife. But uh, Dr. Chapel says this, carnal people make small problems bigger while spiritual people make big problems smaller. Oh, how important that is. We, we, we ought to be going around uh, uh, making molehills out of mountains instead of making mountains out of molehills. And you know what I'm talking about. And, and maybe someone will contact you about this or that. And did you hear? Did you see? And man, it's something small. And they're making it seem like it's, you know, a national inquirer or something like that. You know, uh, it's just incredible. We have to uh, reduce that. Ephesians 4, 3 says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, reducing friction in the local church and in your family is the responsibility of each individual Christian. Peter puts it plainly, finally be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous, the Bible says. So servants must mutilate strife. How do we do that? Letter A, we must be like-minded. Letter B, we must be lowly-minded. Not only must, must we be like-minded, we must be lowly-minded. Look at verse number three. It says this, Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. That's undue elation of mind. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other. What is esteeming? It means to place a value, right? And so value others better than themselves. We must be lowly minded. Where does strife originate? What's the genesis of division? 
What is it in our lives that hinders unity of mind and heart? Proverbs 13.10 tells us, only by pride cometh contention. That means if there's strife, guess what the source is? Pride. Someone has pride. And most of the time, it's two someones that have pride if there's strife. In the previous point, we used Romans 12 verses 4 and 5 to challenge us to unity in the body. But you must look at verse 3 as well and not miss it. It says this, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I love that verse. Paul says, hey, we seem to look at ourselves and think of ourselves way up here. We tend to miss the blemishes in our own lives, don't we? It's easy to look at someone else and say, well, you know, they should be doing this, 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 this. And maybe they should be. But what about you? What about me? What about when I look in the mirror? Well, what's going on in my life? Strife is always rooted in and supported by pride. When the I gets focused on self, the I gets out of focus towards others. Solomon admonishes us to let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth. A stranger and not thine own lips, the Bible says. The devil knows well how effective pride is, for it was that sin that causes downfall. Whenever you get puffed up with yourself, take a trip back to Calvary. Pride doesn't grow well in the shadow of the cross. Servants must mutilate self. Um, how do we do that? We must be like-minded, we must be lowly-minded. Number two, number two, you're listening great. Servants must not only mutilate self, they must master self. Not only must we mutilate strife, excuse me, we must mutilate strife, not mutilate self. Don't do that. <laughs> we must mutilate strife. And then we must master self. Boy, this is so difficult. This is the lifelong journey of the Christian to continually put ourselves down. We are our own worst enemy, D.L. Moody used to say this. The man I fear the most is the man who walks underneath this hat. <laughs> when Abraham Lincoln was running for president of the United States, a reporter asked him if he feared any of his opponents. Lincoln thought for a moment and said, yes, one. The reporter was surprised for Lincoln was doing very well in his campaign. He said, really, which one do you fear? Lincoln said, I fear a man, you've heard it, named Lincoln. If I am defeated, it will be by a man named Lincoln. A preacher relates a story. He was driving down the freeway, he says, on one day on my way to Los Angeles. He says, I was in the middle of a three-lane highway with the cruise control set at the speed limit. The fast lane to my left was buzzing with those breezing by me in a hurry to die, or so it seemed. To my right was the slow lane for buses and trucks that were laboring to make it through the mountain pass. As I looked at my rearview mirror, I noticed a car approaching me very quickly in the center lane. My first reaction was to look to my left side of your mirror and see if there was room to pass, but the lane was crowded with other cars. I looked to my right to see if I could get over and get out of the way, but the lane was too crowded. As I glanced back at my rearview mirror, that white convertible was now right on top of me. The driver was a female, and her long blonde hair was blowing in the wind. Sunglasses covered her eyes, but I could see that she was very perturbed that I was slowing her down. At that point, the preacher says, I was tempted to slow down to about 45. Or better, yes, she was a convertible, turn on my windshield washers, he said. But he didn't do either. He said, I didn't either. And soon she found an opening to the left and sped hurriedly around me, giving me an evil look as she passed by. I couldn't help but notice her license plate had an acronym for the phrase, quote, love one's self. <laughs> How appropriate, I thought, until the Holy Spirit convicted me, he says, that the license plate would fit nicely on my car most days. 2 Timothy 3.1 tells us this. The Bible says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Have you ever thought that these must be the last days? How many have thought that? Boy, over the past couple of years, we certainly have. They certainly seem to be perilous with all war, crime, gangs, immorality, violence, uh, corruption, vice. But read carefully verse 2. It says this, For men shall be lovers of their own 
selves. How convicting is that? When God points to signs of the last days, he doesn't point out uh, to same-gender marriages or drug abuse or crime. He goes right to the heart with the dagger of conviction and points out that we worship, uh, <clears throat> that we worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Uh, and we put ourselves on that pedestal. Well, how dangerous that is. If we're going to serve as an expression of our new nature, we must master self. And here are three enemies here to mastering self. Letter A, the enemy of elevation. The enemy of elevation. Look at verse 3, chapter 2, verse number 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. The enemy of elevation. Instead of complimenting others, we often succumb to comparing ourselves with others. And we, won't, we don't say it out loud, but we do it in our hearts. Maybe scrolling through Facebook. I would never do that. No, I'm not, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not saying that you, if someone's in gross sin that you shouldn't think, Lord, help me not to do that. That's not my point. But we begin to look at others, and as we begin to look at others sometimes, our self-worth and our own mind starts to do this. We start to elevate ourselves. And man, they shouldn't be doing it. They've been in church a long time. Why are they? Oh, I wouldn't have said that. I would, I, I would have done this. That wasn't a wise decision. And, I'm not, and you have to, be, you have to have, do what God wants you to do. I understand that. And if you see someone making wrong decision, the Lord convicts you, you ought to do what God tells you to do. But, but what I'm saying is we begin to focus too much on others and, and how much better we are than they and how I would have done better here and I would have done better there. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, we're, we, we think we're all that in a bag of chips. And that's not what God wants. Let each seem other better than themselves. I think the story in John chapter 21 can help us. Peter in a backslidden state heads off to his favorite fishing hole. Remember, he says, I go a fishing. You remember that? And a bunch of others go with him. After fishing all night and catching how much? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Isn't that how that works? I'm done with this serving God thing. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And it ends up being nothing. It ends up being empty, vain. He catches nothing. Jesus appears in the morning and performs a miracle catch and then invites them to breakfast. It is after they have dined that Jesus asked Peter three times. Remember that, lovest thou me? Remember that? Lord is not looking for some pat answer as he predicts that Peter is going to die for Christ because of his recommitment. He says this in John 21, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Peter, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, thou walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch, stretch forth thy hands, another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. He says, You're gonna, they're going to take you where you don't want to go, Peter. Verse 19, This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. Peter is apparently okay with that. He doesn't flinch, he doesn't argue. Quite a difference from a few hours earlier when he was discouraged and ready to quit. As Peter's life plays out, we find him being a faithful, being faithful even to a martyr's death. But even in this state of extraordinary dedication, watch the human tendency of comparison raise its ugly head. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which is John, which also leaned on his breast to supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Talking about John. Peter seeing him, John, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? That's what's going on with me, but, but what about him? Can I, can I compare myself to him? Isn't that amazing? And I love the Lord's response in the next verse. Jesus saith unto him, if, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Jesus said, uh, whatever's going on with John, whatever my plan is for John, don't worry about that. Don't, don't look at what you're going to do compared to what he's going to do. Just do what I ask you to do, Peter. And may I say, in our lives, it's so, it's so dangerous we start beginning to compare and say, oh, this, that, and look at others. But let's just focus on what God has asked us to do. Let's just go and let's do what God has impressed on our hearts. Be careful about elevating yourself above others in the ministry. Be careful about that. Man, the devil can use that to start strife. He really can. Well, let's be careful. We are to run the race that is set before us, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 2. 
To worry about the one in the next lane is unwise. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves are not what? They're not wise, the Bible says. The race of the Christian life is not a competition between me and the guy next to me. That's not the way it works. The award ceremony at the judgment seat will not be about how well anyone did compared to anyone else, but how well we ran the race God set before us individually. There are no leaderboards in heaven. <laughs> it is about what God has asked you to do. So beware of the enemy of elevation. Let her be. Beware of the enemy of ego. Now I know no one in this room ever has an ego. I know. We have to beware of the enemy of ego. The Bible says in verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, getting so focused on ourselves. Sometimes I'm afraid I want the right things, but I want some of the credit in the process. And that's not God's design. Paul puts us quickly in our place in 1 Corinthians 4. These things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to, to differ from one another? What hast thou that thou didst not receive? And now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Paul's saying, look, anything that you have is because of God anyway. So we have no reason to be puffed up against anyone uh, in the family of God. Jesus adds, without me, ye can do nothing. Paul adds, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, Paul says. Paul says, hey, anything that I've been able to do has not been because of Paul. It's been because of God. I may say, any good thing that you, that God uses you to do is not because of you. Amen. I hate to burst your bubble. It's because of him. It's because of him. Now, he uses us, and I'm trying to demean you. He uses us if we put ourselves in his hand, but it's not because we are some awesome gift to him. No, it's because he uses us. John had it right. A man can receive nothing, he said in John 3, except it be given him from heaven. If God blesses your life, if God blesses your family, if God blesses your ministry, and the list goes on, be sure to remind yourself to give him all the glory and all the credit. He deserves all of it. 2 Corinthians 10, but he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. <laughs> I think that's great. He says, not the person who commends himself is given the okay. No, no, no. The person that God says is doing right is the one who's doing right. We see the enemy of elevation, the enemy of ego. Let us see the enemy of evasion. The enemy of evasion. You're doing so well. We're almost done. The enemy of evasion. Look at verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Perhaps one of the greatest sins after not giving glory to God is when in our pride we fail to acknowledge others who are faithfully serving God as well. Several examples of this selfish and prideful evasion of others are seen in Scripture. How about Elijah? Remember Elijah? He had that great battle on Mount Carmel. Man, I love that story. Uh, I've heard preachers say when I was younger, and, and I have no idea how true this is, uh, but I've heard them say that one day when we get to, when we get to glory, we get to eternity, uh, we'll be able to go back and see these events happen. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you can find support for that. Maybe you can. Um, but I hope we get to do that because this is one of the stories I would love to see. And uh, so you, I won't go into the story, but you know what happens. And, and, and Elijah, through, the, through that prayer, uh, God sends down fire, consumes a sacrifice, looks up the dust, the Bible says, and all the people say, the Lord, he is the God, right? And then they do that. And, and then um, they, they, they slay all, all the prophets, right? all the false prophets. And, uh, and then Jezebel sends a message to Elijah. You remember that? 
Jezebel sends a message to Elijah, the wicked queen, and she says, hey, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to make you like one of those prophets you killed. In other words, you're dead meat, buddy. I'm coming after you. And so he runs and he hides and, and, uh, and he's, he's afraid, of course. And he says in 1 Kings 19, and he said, Elijah, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And he's right. He was. He went against Ahab and Jezebel. He was very jealous. Because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. He says, I'm the only one, God, and they seek my life to take it away. Oh, but what did God respond to him? He said, I have way more people serving me than just you, Elijah. Hang on. Uh, let, let's get you out of this pity party. You're not the only one. I have more that, are, that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. How about Martha? Who said in Luke 10, she was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Doesn't that sound like sisters? God, get on her case. I'm doing all the work. Uh, Bid her therefore that she help me, Martha said. And there was King Saul. He should have been rejoicing in the victory over Goliath. The battle was truly the Lord's. He had used a young boy named David to accomplish that great task. But during the victory parade down Main Street, Saul heard the lyrics to a song that was rising fast on the top 10 charts. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth. The saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed unto David ten thousands. To me, have they ever ascribed but thousands? And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Former President Ronald Reagan used to say this, it would be amazing what could be accomplished in this country if we didn't care who got the credit. Oh, how important it is that we're able to look at others and rejoice and praise when they do something well. Maybe you could think of five people. Maybe you could think of it right now. Five people you could praise. Looking not on our own things, but looking on the things of others and encouraging one another. Maybe it's your kid's teacher. Maybe you ought to send them a text message tomorrow and say, I appreciate what you do for my kids. And, and praise you, you do such a good job. Uh, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a brother in Christ. But maybe you ought to send a text or call and praise others for doing right. Hey, if it will take the attention off of yourself and onto others. Instead of always looking at others thinking what they could have done better, how about what they're doing well for the Lord? How about after Sunday school on Sunday, you go up to your Sunday school teacher, uh, do you go up to the brother, 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 thank you, brother, that was a great lesson. And, and encourage and lift up one another. In this new nature, we must master self by striking down the enemy's elevation of ego, of evasion. I have about five minutes. I got to hurry. Uh, number three, and we'll, we'll, we'll be done in just a minute. Servants must mutilate strife. Servants must master self. And in this new nature, we must learn that servants must have the mind of the Savior. We must have the mind of the Savior. Let's look at verses five through eight. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In Romans 12, as Pastor eloquently preached last Sunday, Paul challenges us to give ourselves completely to God, and then tells us how to do so. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ephesians 4.23, Paul says this, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When we are thinking correctly, we can live correctly. Proverbs 23.7 says this, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our thinking needs to change as a result of the new nature that we possess. It's time to change our minds. So what type of mind should we have? Letter A, we should have a harmonious mind. We should have a harmonious mind. I just have three here, A, B, and C, and we're done. We should have a harmonious mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Our mind ought to be in harmony with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mind is to be in harmony with the mind of our Savior. That's, that's a pretty tall order, and it seems impossible, humanly. But have you ever noticed that when you spend time with someone, you begin to think alike? Those of you that have been married for many years, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, you can see a situation, and you'll, you'll be thinking the same exact thing. Or if you're married to, to a wife like mine, she knows my thoughts 24-7. <laughs> she, she just knows me so well, and we spend so much time together, she knows what I'm thinking. And when you begin to spend time with someone, you begin to think alike. When we find ourselves not thinking as Christ would think, the plain fact is we are not spending enough time with him. If we find that our thoughts are not matching up with the thoughts that Christ would have as expressed in his word, the fact is we're just not spending enough time. We're not being close enough to him to, be, to think like him. 2 Peter 1.4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Did you notice? The partakers of divine nature. How? Through great and precious promises. It's not rocket science. The more time we spend saturating ourselves in the word of God, the more we're going to think like him. The more we hear what he did and what he does, and we'll begin to think that way ourselves. A neglect of God's word in our lives will leave us without direction and prime candidates for destruction. Jeremiah 8, 9. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what wisdom is in them? The rhetorical question, obviously, none. Because they're not spending time with God. We must have a harmonious mind. Letter B, I'm almost done. We must have a humble mind. A humble mind. Oh, how tough this is in this day and age. It's always been tough. But boy, the, the commercialization of everything, it, it's all about your image and your brand and, and making sure, oh, but we're supposed to have a humble mind, the Bible says. Look at verse number six. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. There are some, uh, these are some of the most amazing words in all of scripture. Can we think about this for a brief moment? God in the flesh. God, the creator, the I am, the preexistent one in the flesh it was not blasphemy for Jesus to claim he was God, for he was. Yet Jesus Christ spent his entire earthly time making himself of no reputation. How interesting would it be if the president of the United States came and no one recognized who he was? There was no fanfare. There was no none of that. We think, well, what's going on here? Don't we know who this man is? But Jesus Christ, God came. No fanfare. No big celebration. Born in that stable in Bethlehem. No reputation. Carpenter's son. No reputation. He, 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 he was, it wasn't in, in the headlines in the Jerusalem Times. The king, Christ, is born in Bethlehem. No, 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 no reputation. Credible. That sure is different from the corporate ladder climbing. 
resume padding, glamour building culture of this century. Jesus is described as meek and lowly in heart. Humility really is a do-it-yourself project. 2 Corinthians 7.14, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The prophet of old spells out God's requirements in our lives. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Knowing God makes us humble. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. The Bible says his train filled the temple. What did he say? Oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. When he saw God, he realized how much he needed God, how much help he needed. Knowing God makes us humble. Knowing ourselves ought to keep us there. <laughs> we know who we are. Now, of course, when we're around people, we're our best self. But we know who we really are. We know who we are when, 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 when no one's there. We know the attitudes we have, uh, the thoughts we think. And knowing God ought to make us humble and knowing ourselves ought to keep us there. Nothing is ever learned without first learning to be humble. The smaller we are, the more room God has for us. On a humorous note, someone said this, a humble man, next slide, brother, I think, a humble man never blows his nose in public. A humble man. And this is not out here trying to show everybody how much we know. No, 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 it's humble. It's humility. We must have a harmonious mind, a humble mind. I'm done. Let her see. A helpful mind. A helpful mind. Look at verse 7. The Bible says, He took upon him, Christ, the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus came to this earth for the purpose of living and then dying for others. His whole life was consumed with ministering to the needs of those around him. Not one moment was ever lived selfishly. Paul pays the ultimate compliment to Christ when he said this, for even Christ pleased not himself. He came here not to do what he wanted to do to make him happy, but to help others and ultimately to obey the Father. There was never a need in the presence of Christ. He did not do everything in his power to meet. It didn't matter if his need was knocking on his door in the middle of the night or walking toward him as he rested on a well or was up in a sycamore tree or beside the highway begging or nailed on a cross right next to him. He never considered himself but humbled himself and serve. <clears throat> Dr. Getz relates this story, and I'll be done. I mean, who Dr. David Gibbs is from the Christian Law Association. If you've not heard him preach, I encourage you to look him up. Great preacher. But he stopped by uh, their church one day, and they were having a leadership team meeting at the time. And so uh, the pastor asked him, Dr. Gibbs, to step into the room and say a few words to the 10 men seated at the table in the leadership meeting. He reminded them, he says, of the story in Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through 37, about the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, right? The Good Samaritan story. Dr. Gibbs said, gentlemen, there are some who go through life beating up people, just as these thieves in the story wounded this man, departing, leaving him half dead on the side of the road. The world today is littered with people who have been used and abused by sin and are hurting and hopelessly dying as a result. But then he said, there are others who spend their life not beating up people, but passing up people. By chance, there came by that wounded man a priest and a Levite. They both looked on him, saw his condition, and what did they do? They passed by on the other side. Nope, not dealing with that today. But there was one who passed by who wasn't beating him up and wasn't passing him up. He decided to help him up, the Good Samaritan, as we call him. And he went to him and poured medicine in his wounds, bound him up, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The preacher says, I'll never forget that brief challenge that day. I don't know about you, but when we stand before the Lord, I think that the only thing that will matter is how many we helped up. I don't know if you know this song. I don't think it's in our hymnal. But it's a song, I wonder have I done my best for Jesus. The chorus says, how many are the lost that I have lifted? How many are the chained 
I've helped to free. I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus? For he has done so much for me. When we stand before God, it won't be about how good we looked. It'll be about how many we helped. How many we helped up. We used to sing a song in Sunday school growing up called Jesus and Others in You. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others in you in the life of each girl and each boy. J is for Jesus, for he has first place. O is for others we meet face to face. Y is for you. In whatever you do, put yourself last and spell joy. Life-changing truth is certainly found in that little chorus. Ultimately, and I close, it boils down to whether we're going to be a Philippians 1.21 Christian or a Philippians 2.21 Christian. Philippians 1.21 says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2.21, For all seek their own not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Self-centered pride characterizes the old nature, but the new nature is exemplified in a selfless service to Christ. If you want a miserable life, live for yourself. How many have found that out to be true? (laughs) I do everything I think will make me happy, and in the end, I realize it didn't. If you want joy, live for Christ and live for others. You'll always have that joy in your heart. I like the song Alfred Ackley wrote. It's in our hymnal. It says, I'm happy in the service of the king. I am happy. Oh, so happy. I have peace and joy that nothing else can bring in the service of the king. In the service of the king, every talent I will bring, there's peace and joy and blessing in the service of the king. You want to have joy in your life? Follow this new nature. Take the focus off of yourself. Take the focus off of you. Put it on others and serve someone else in the body of Christ. You'll have that joy in your heart and in your life.